Well, as you guys have already said, being a part of community is critically important to our journey. And we're part of a family, which is called the Vineyard, which is bigger than this church or the two churches that are here in Duluth. Uh, so I'm really glad to be here. Thank you guys for having me. Um, there is a, there's a restaurant in my town called The Flying Pig. I'm trying to think of who that reminds me of. I was most recently on a plane, so maybe it's me. But I am visiting this great northern community from the state of Ohio uh, on Saturday when I told the Uber driver who took me to the airport that I was headed to Duluth, Minnesota. He just shivered. He didn't say anything. He just went, ooh. And I thought to myself, he's probably right. But this is not my first trip to Duluth. I was here in 2019 uh, as part of Project Timothy, which is a uh, youth conference that the Vineyard hosts around the country. And it was 75 degrees for those like two days. And so we had summer. That was great. Thank you for that. But let me just say this. I would also, uh, if we do get to connect, don't apologize for how cold it is. It would be like if you visited me in Ohio and I said, I'm sorry that there's so much corn. Right? This is your world. This is where you live. You choose this. Be proud of it. Enjoy. I thought I dressed appropriately. I pulled up this morning jacket, scarf, hat, gloves, long pants. And I said to somebody, I said, I think I'm dressed for the weather. She said, do you have on a base layer? And I said, I, I don't. She said, typically fleece-lined leggings. So I don't even own those. I might have to borrow them from my wife if... That's my next trip up here. But uh, I do actually have a history of heading to the north. As I mentioned, I'm from Ohio. Both of my college roommates were from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and so as part of our spring break from the great university, the Ohio State University. Nobody? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my fellow Cincinnatian wearing her, you know, bangles attire. Uh, we would... While all of our classmates were headed to Daytona Beach or Panama City, I spent spring break my junior year in Madison and my senior year in Eau Claire. So, you know, maybe there's something about the draw of the North that lives deep in me. Um, back in the days of landlines, my roommates, both of them, again, from Wisconsin, they would, they would answer the phone, and if it was my mom or my dad, they would say, phone's for you, eh? And it took me a while to realize they were actually speaking English, and they were telling me something that I needed to know. So I'm grateful to be here. Uh, hey, we're going to jump in, but before we do, I have a question. How many of you remember the iconic movie Field of Dreams? It might be dating some of you. The majority of the room feels old enough to have remembered that. Ladies, Kevin Costner. Uh, there you go. There was a phrase that has become popularized in our world, if you build it... They will come. Well done. Let's try that again. If you build it, they will come. Interestingly, that's not actually the line in the movie. The line in the movie is, if you build it, he will come. Now, I want you to hold that just for a moment because I want to build a bridge from the series you have been in, in the book of Exodus, to the passage and the text we'll be looking at today. Michael and John have done a great job over the last number of weeks. I've actually watched a couple of the messages just to make sure I had a point of reference for where you guys have been and what you were doing. But Exodus 25 says this, let them construct for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. 
according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Now again, hold that phrase, if you build it, he will come. God says, and maybe Kevin Costner prophesied to us, if you build a space, he will join us. He will dwell with us, dwell among us. God desires an intimate relationship with his people to be with, to dwell among. It's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. As the message said, he moved into the neighborhood. He's become close to us. It's his intent from Genesis through Exodus that you've examined the last number of weeks and beyond earlier in the, in the fall. Through the New Testament to the culmination of Revelation, we see constantly God's desire to be with his people. He is very comfortable and indeed gets incredibly creative in making his home within creation and amongst his people. God wants to be close. In Genesis, we see of God walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening breeze. Could you imagine that? Maybe not today but walking with God in the cool of the evening breeze, enjoying company. We see God walk with a man named Enoch in the Old Testament. We see him connect to Abraham, calling him into relationship. We see God with Moses. And the scriptures tell us that God talked to Moses as one talks to a friend. Now think about that. Think about the last conversation. That is a ringtone that as a preacher is literally the worst noise you could possibly imagine. So... That was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. It is the fear of a preacher. Crickets. That was perfect. I love it. God desires. Think about the last conversation you had with a friend. Think about how simple, maybe how silly, how intimate, or the things that you shared. What's the level of access that they have if this is a friend who's known you for a few years? It's the way that God spoke to Moses as the way one speaks to a friend. And we see, as you guys have examined again, God, with his people, he builds a tent in which he can reside and work and travel and connect and stay engaged with the folks through the tabernacle. Interestingly, as you guys again have examined, there is more space in the scriptures devoted to the account of the tabernacle than any other object in all of scripture. 15 chapters, Exodus 25 through 40. Now to put it in context, for those of you who promote the Bible, the Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters. 15 chapters for the tabernacle, 16 chapters for the life of Jesus accounted for by Mark. Do you see the significance, the weight of the dwelling place of God among us in the space. In Exodus 25, 22, as you continue in that text, there I will meet with you, this won't show up on your screens, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, where, which is upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in the commandments as sons of Israel. God is going to engage with you through the tabernacle. It's the dw that dwelling place of God, where he exists in the midst of his people. And yet, like most of the objects in the Old Testament, it is also so much more than that. So much more than that. It's a pointer. It's a foreshadow. The New Testament makes reference of the tabernacle, specifically in the book of Hebrews, which in and of itself cannot be understood without connection to Exodus. We find this in Hebrews 9, which will show up on your screens. When everything had been arranged like this, the way you've examined it over the last number of weeks, those 15 chapters that I've referenced the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. 
But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed in ignorance. The Old Testament, and for that matter, the whole sacrificial system, which is expressed through the worship, the ritual worship of the tabernacle, uses this fundamental distinction between clean and unclean which I'm not sure if you've explored at all in your own life, of kind of thinking through how these contrasts show up in the scriptures, but the comparison of our sin to filth, the comparison of the sin as as wretched, as terrible, as uh, disgusting or unholy, that's summed up in this kind of language of unclean. And unclean things cannot engage the holy, pure God. I believe you explored a little bit of that last week, with John's message. And so we find in this story around the tabernacle in the Old Testament pattern, the prevailing power of sin is shown by the fact that unclean always pollutes the clean. Things that are unclean, when they come into contact with things that are clean in the Old Testament, they pollute. But it is completely the opposite with Jesus. Okay? That in the Old Testament, the unclean pollutes the clean in the New Testament when Jesus, who is pure and sinless and blameless, comes into contact with things that seem to be unclean, the exact opposite happens. He does not become unclean. Those who come into contact with him become transformed and beautiful. The lepers of the Old Testament, if they ever came into contact with you, you would have to then go into a time of ritual ceremonial cleaning. But we see in the New Testament, Jesus touches a leper, and the leper is healed and made clean, acceptable to God and to the community. The power that we see in the story of Jesus is he makes the unclean clean, and in so doing, makes you and I acceptable to God. Amen? Oh, you're going to have to do better than that. You did better on the field of dreams. If you build it... Oh, we gotta, we're going to we're gonna have to amp up again, guys. We're going to have to do that. What's great is we literally have some of this imagery sitting before us. This baptismal that we will celebrate shortly and in the second service as well is a picture of what Jesus is able to do. That when we come into contact with him, he does something for us that allows us to connect to God without shame or guilt, without having to fake it or hide. We can come as we are because we come to God through the work of Christ's accomplishment on our behalf. The Old Testament format says this, only one of you, only once a year, and only through the blood of goats and lambs. The story of the scriptures and the way of Jesus, which has the same kind of powerful expression, where Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The implications of Jesus' statement are this. Anyone, anytime, through the gracious work of the cross, to have access to God the Father. A fellow Minnesotan, who I would imagine maybe there's differing opinions about in the room, John Piper, says the Old Testament tabernacle and the priests were sacrifices as shadows. Now the reality has come. The shadow has passed away. The reality has come. Jesus is the real thing. I was just watching this beautiful interaction in the lobby. This young boy, blonde head, three years old, 
standing before the half wall before you go down to the kid's wing, and he's watching his shadow, and he gave his shadow a couple of high fives. And then some of you would walk in the door, and you'd block the shadow, and you'd try to figure out what happened to it. There is a shadow of this young man, and there is the reality of this young man. Parents, you know the difference, don't you? His parents certainly would know the difference. There is a shadow which is the former thing, the way of the Old Testament and the tabernacle. Jesus, the reality, is doing a new thing. It's the longest introduction ever. Let's pray. (laughs) Jesus, do a new thing today. Even for those who are here who had an inclination maybe to sign up for baptism for this morning, or for those who didn't even realize that might be an option, but are being drawn to you, do a new thing today. Recreate in us by the power of your grace and your mercy and your spirit. Show us what is real about ourselves by understanding what is real about you. Cause me to speak as I should, I pray. And all of God's children say, yes. It was better. Still not great. You'll realize if you come to my church, I've had to coach our church as well to get responsiveness. But I need it. It helps. Matthew 9, you'll see on your screen, says this. Then John's disciples came to him and asked, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. John, the Baptist, after identifying Jesus on the horizon, he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he baptizes him in the Jordan River. And later he finds himself in prison. Now he had publicly called out one of the rulers, the governors of the area for The way he was living his life, he had taken his brother's son as his own. It was a level of corruption in the kind of community. And John the Baptist calls this out as evil. And so he ends up in prison. Now in prison, he has his disciples, and apparently they would come back and forth and tell John the accounts of what Jesus was doing. John, who had said, this man is the one, the one we've waited for, the one we've hoped for, this Jesus is the one. And now John's in prison. He's trying to actually understand, is this worth giving up my life for? Is this actually the real deal? At very least, the reports seem to be confusing, if not troubling. We know from the scriptures that John himself had lived sort of a restrictive lifestyle. He'd given up on fine wine and good food and rich clothing or good clothing. He was sort of known as this aesthetic who lived a very austere existence. Jesus is living a little bit differently. He's gathering with sinners. He's feasting. He's drinking. He's socializing with folks who are both in and outside of the faith communities of the Jewish people. And it seems to be concerning because he's not following the expectations of religious leaders or even of the culture. 
often offending people's senses. Eventually, John sends his disciples, we see later in Matthew 11, and says, what's actually going on here? We find in this text that John's disciples are there, and Jesus responds, and he says, listen, there's a time for everything. There is a time for mourning, and that's going to come, or for fasting, and that'll come because fasting and mourning were connected in Jewish traditions. The wedding celebration that Jesus is acknowledging, this is not the time to deny yourself. How many of you have been to a wedding recently? Is that participation thing we were talking about? (laughs) I was at a wedding Friday night, catching an early morning flight. I was very aware of how much celebration would I enjoy. But weddings are celebrations. I am committed. I don't know how you guys feel about dancing. Um... I'm committed to be the first person on the dance floor at a reception because it's like middle school. You realize in middle school, it just takes one person to start kind of, and all of a sudden, other people start dancing. You guys remember that moment? Some of you know in the middle school, or at a wedding, it's not until they play the electric slide that you feel like, oh, now this is my jam. And you can get out and you can participate because your awkwardness is swallowed up by the awkwardness of everybody else. But I figure somebody has to break the ice and somebody has to increase the amount of celebration that can happen. And so Jesus is simply saying, listen, weddings are feasts, they're parties. We're celebrating and we should be in this moment of Christ on earth celebrating. And so our kids or our disciples aren't going to act the way that you think they should. But he says, listen, people don't pour new wine into old wineskins. I'm not doing things the way you think they should be, but there's a reason for that. If you do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins so that both are preserved. Jesus is establishing a significant contrast between new and old. The way things used to be and the way things are. What was formerly part of the ritual worship and what is now present before you, the shadow and the reality. The kid high-fiving the wall is not high-fiving another child. Those are different things. By definition, contrast means the state of being strikingly different from something else in proximity. Strikingly different from something else in proximity. Jesus is standing in the landscape of Jewish culture and saying, I am strikingly different than what came before. So let's practice. Say strikingly different. different. Yes. I just need to prime you, I think. I need to prime you to respond. That's great. Jesus is indeed strikingly different. To the Pharisees, to the religious leaders like John, who had come before him as a hopeful messenger, to the average everyday person. People didn't quite know what to do with Jesus. He is strikingly different from their expectations. Here's a question that you should begin thinking about. Is he strikingly different than yours? Is he also strikingly different than ours? Does he do things that confound us? Does God ever confuse you? Then don't distance yourself too far from the text. Jesus is strikingly different. The Bible, again, uses this literary tool, contrast, to to, to identify the significance of the newness of God, light and dark. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll find in the first chapter of John, the gospel, it says that light came into the darkness. 
That's a contrasting reality. When the lights get flipped on and the darkness goes away, two things are not the same anymore. Life and death is a way in which God speaks about what he's doing in the world. He's bringing new life into things that have died. We see that even in the demonstrations of the miraculous, of resurrection. Jesus has power over life and death. And in this case, we hear this contrast, new and old. You'll see on your screens, new wine requires new wineskins. New wine requires new wineskins. Or maybe put differently for us, new content requires new context. The new things that God is doing in the world require new ways and new spaces for them to be experienced. Old works, old ways don't serve new works. Again, there's these ways of thinking about the new and the old and what God is up to and what he's presently doing even in our own lives. Now, if you're not familiar with this ancient practice, and maybe some of you are, it might be difficult to understand, but in Jesus' time, people used animal skins and animal bladders to store liquids. And fermented liquids, like wine, expand as they mature. And so there needed to be a way to hold these that was flexible enough to expand with the liquid as the liquid fermented and grew and bubbled and did all the things. So new wine skins would be used and they would be flexible enough to expand. But once they've expanded, now they've reached, you know, like when you haven't washed your jeans for like three weeks? They're still the same pair of jeans, but they don't, they now have just gone a little bit too expanded. Well, what do you do with those? You wash them, and they draw back a little bit to their normal shape, and maybe are a little bit too tight, for honest. Is that an experience any of you have? Right? Uh, I don't know the last time I've washed these jeans. I just keep growing during the winter, so they seem to fit as I expand. Maybe I'm fermenting. But if you would then pour new wine into old wineskins that had been stretched, maybe dried out and became brittle, as that new wine would expand, then the seams would burst and things would spill. The container and its contents ruined. Jesus is saying what is happening requires a new way of thinking. It requires some flexibility, some elasticity. The thing that God is doing isn't rigid in the way of the old form, it's actually something new. Now, I felt like as I was praying this morning, one of the ways I want some of you to be thinking, are you rigid? Are you a rigid person? If you're a rigid person, I think God actually has something for you. Don't tap the person next to you and tell them, hey, listen up. Is there rigidity in the way that you think about relationships or your time or your schedule, your expectations of others? Some of us know that if we're not out the door by a certain time, there might actually be hell to pay because we've got to be there and do the... And do, has anyone... Do you know anybody like that? Are you like that? Is there a rigidity to your life with God even? That at 9 a.m. we do the thing or at 6 a.m. we do the thing and God, if you're not there at 6 a.m., I am and it's got to be this way and we read the thing the same way we've done the thing the whole time and for 20 years we've done it this way and do you, do you need a new wineskin? Do you, do you maybe need a little flexibility in your life with God? Some of you are probably uncomfortable with the thought that maybe the disciplined nature 
of your life with God has turned into a bit of a routine that might need to be flexed a little bit. Or maybe you're even more present to the fact that what I've done previously isn't working now. That what got me here isn't going to get me there. That God might be doing a new thing in you. That might require some flexibility. He might be wanting to pour new wine into new wineskins, even among us today. He's strikingly different, doing a new thing. If John or anyone else tried to make sense of what Jesus was doing through the lens of the old expectations, they would at best misunderstand it and at worst miss it completely. If they were expecting him to behave as everyone else who had behaved before them, they would misunderstand or miss it. And if you look at just this chapter, chapters 9, 10, and 11, you'll see a number of moments where this is true. Jesus forgives sins. And he's accused of blaspheming. Jesus forgives sins, the thing that each of us desperately needs to experience from God. The system that had been in place in the olden days was intended to address sin on an annual basis. Jesus shows up to address sin once for all in his own body, and he's accused of blaspheming. They missed it. They missed it. Jesus extends mercy to sinners. He says, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. And for that, he was challenged by the people he kept around the table or those he allowed to come close. Some of you will know a story of a woman of what we'll call ill repute. Don't even know what that means. Oh, I have a funny story I'll add to. This will make sense in just about two seconds. When we planted our church, one of our elders in the opening service of 2009 was introducing me uh, as part of our service in the same way that Michael and Brian did that thing just a few minutes ago. And... uh, He said, one thing I love about Rob, and he kind of listed a couple of things. He said, Julie, Julie has always reminded me of Mary Magdalene. (laughs) Some of you who are connected to the story of the scriptures, you understand Mary Magdalene was a woman of ill repute. And so I thought, this is, this, this is, I have to do something about this. I think you've just insulted my wife. But I don't think that was your intent. And so as the room kind of did what you guys did, he was like, no, no, she's like, like a person of deep devotion after having encountered God and having her life changed. I was like, okay, good, because the whole ill repute, prostitution, demonization thing is a little bit, we got to figure that part out. <laughs> and he had the same moment I think Michael and Brian had where he was flushed and I was trying to just continue to, so what did you, what did you mean by that? Just kind of stay there a little longer, make his awkwardness as awkward as humanly possible for him. (laughs) Jesus critiqued the religious system that had brought bondage rather than freedom. It had put weight and pressure on people in a way it was never intended to, for which his very life was threatened. He said, I'm going to come to bring freedom. And people say, oh, we should kill you for that. Religious leaders missed it or they misunderstood He demonstrated authority over 
life and death, both temporally in body and eternally as he talked about salvation. And for that he was mocked. Some of you know in the final days of his life, and he's on the cross actually, the very few moments, save yourself if you are indeed the son of God. The onlookers mock him because they miss it. They misunderstand it because Jesus is doing a new thing. Because new wine requires new wineskins. He demonstrated power to heal the sick and to deliver the demonized for which he was accused of being the devil. Do you see that as Jesus did all the things Jesus did, people are saying, how do we make sense out of you? And if we can't, we have to distance ourselves because it's complicated. And Jesus says, I'm doing a new thing. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins. It did not fit the old way. So we have the benefit of hindsight. We get to read the stories in the scripture, connect some of the dots, see the ark of the Old Testament carried through, the New Testament fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We, as modern hearers of the scriptures, have the benefit of hindsight, but it would also be maybe arrogant if we think that we're immune from not trying to make the infinite God manageable. We would be foolish to think that maybe the questions or the, the moments that confuse them could never confuse us. Those who chose to follow Jesus in the first century or attempt to make sense of him in the first century, maybe those in this room who are attempting to make sense of Jesus or follow him can learn a little bit from this text. Their questions then can often sound like the same questions we have now. Must we tolerate our enemies? No. No, it's more than that. You must love your enemies. Well, can't, can't we just tolerate them? Is that an option? Because they're my enemy. They've harmed me. They've hurt me. They've done something. No, love your enemies. That teaching of Jesus is that anyone gets confused or struggled with? I know for me, coming through the last number of years, there have been relationships that were exposed to the difficulties of COVID or politics or racial tensions, and all of a sudden you're realizing we're actually having confrontations that I didn't know were there, and relationships changed, and all of a sudden different friends were now adversaries, and it was confusing, and it was confusing because we're also in the same church, and I'm going, I think, I think we're just really supposed to love each other in a way that seemed hard, and maybe some of you have had similar experiences with family members or friends where it's just been hard. How many times do I have to forgive those who hurt me? Do I have to forgive them again? Yes, every time. Every time. These are powerful teachings. Why doesn't God act how I want, when I want? God, I prayed all the prayers. Put the quarter in, I turned the slot, and the gumball didn't come out. And we can get mad at the gumball machine. Right? Because sometimes we want God to act on our terms. The questions that created unrest and anxiety then create unrest and anxiety now. And we can learn a lot about ourselves when we are able to identify where the teachings of Jesus create unrest and anxiety in us. Jesus encouraged his contemporaries to focus on the fruit of his ministry as they attempted to make sense of his behavior. 
In a similar transaction, John again sends his disciples to Jesus. He's trying again. A couple chapters later, we still don't quite, you don't fast. Okay, that's the wedding thing. Uh, Don't really know what that means. But now you're doing other things. How do we make sense of these other things? John's in prison still. John's going, help. I, I don't, I, this is different than I expected. Go back and ask him again. Are you the one? And John sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we expect another? Do you know that's a statement of utter confusion? John the Baptist. Baptism. See the connection? He goes, listen, I can't make heads or tails out of you. Are you really the guy? Are you the Messiah or should we just wait for another? And Jesus says, go back to John and report what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news Proclaim to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John, I get it. John, I understand. I'm not acting the way you expected me to. I'm not doing the things you had thought I would do. But guys, go back and tell John a few things. The blind see. The deaf hear. The dead are raised back to life. The good news is preached to the poor and they are drawn into the story of God, not pushed off to the side. Jesus says, listen, if you can't make sense of the fast or the feast or the thing I'm doing in the temple or this teaching, look at the fruit. The fruit gives evidence to God's new thing among us. And then he continues in his correction. He says, listen, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly as ferocious as wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In case you don't know, the answer is no. I've learned that through some gardening recently. Likewise, every good tree bears fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. Looking at the fruit helps us recognize followers of Jesus, what he's doing and what God is doing in us. Even when people come from broadly wild theological frameworks or cultural backgrounds or with different preferences or priorities, otherwise we, like the people of Jesus' day, will be tempted to use the wrong standards to figure out what God is up to in our lives or in the lives of others. Jesus is saying, look at what's happening. And what's interesting, if you connect the contrasting language, the blind see, the deaf hear, The dead are raised to life. Jesus says, listen, what was broken is fixed. Now maybe this is for us as we think about kind of preparing our hearts for ministry in a little bit, and even for some, maybe related to prepping a potential spontaneous baptism if you would want to respond this morning, because the unsaved get saved. Those who are far from God are drawn close to God. Those who are on the outside are welcomed in. Those who are orphans are adopted. Anyone 
on any day through the blood of Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. Paul offers us another factor to think through. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Against such things there is no law. So for those who might be governed by anxiety or worry, God says the fruit of his kingdom reign in your life is peace. So if worry is your norm, the evidence of God's work in your life would be the experience of peace. For those of you who are maybe a bit harsh in your tone, a bit aggressive, the fruit of God's work in your life would be a gentleness or a kindness in people's experience of you. You don't just get to say, like me, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. Deal with it. Some of you are like, oh, that's what I say. We don't get to just simply dismiss our broken expressions when God is prepared to fix them and redeem them. For those of you that might harbor hate in your heart, even if you're able to justify it based on the hurt or the pain or the actions of others, that you might be a wellspring of love that overflows to those around you. That's the evidence, the fruit of God in your life. For those who are fickle or inconsistent or maybe distracted by the next shiny thing, may your life be marked by a new sense of faithfulness or constancy. For others who might be impatient or demanding, that you might be patient in your work. And for those, as I said, who have yet to see, receive salvation, then maybe today, you would receive the saving grace of God, responding to the new work, receiving the new wine. We're going to move into a space where uh, I think we're going to create some room for baptism. And I know that uh, there are no signups for this first morning. There are some for the 11 o'clock service. Is that correct, Michael? Michael? But as I've prayed for this morning, my sense has been that there are some who are indeed hungry for an experience of God, and you've hesitated. And I would just want to, as we make space for God's Spirit to move on us, that if there's someone here this morning, and you're just like, ah, but it's cold out, and I have on a base layer, <laughs> that means I'll walk out of here 32 pounds heavier than I walked in as my fleece waterlogged leggings Drip behind me. We, we, we have a change of clothes. <laughs> there it is, the contrast of the fulfillment of the gospel. Your old clothes for your new clothes. Your old wineskins for your new wineskins. We have towels right here. Come right over here, and John and Steph will get you set up. It's awesome. Come you right know, over here to my right, all the way across. It, yeah. It's really fun because be as we've been praying Good for, for this weekend, it's true that we didn't have anybody signed up for this service. Mm -hmm. And we thought about, well, let's just pretend that the tub's here for the next service. And what we've learned over the years is... God always has a plan that maybe we know about and maybe we don't. Maybe we're willing to participate. Maybe we're not. I have a feeling that there might be a couple more of us 
who God's inviting to like take the next step yeah. of following Him uh, in yeah. baptism. And so, yeah. go ahead, Rob, continue. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. A couple of people from the worship team will make their way up. And, but I really, I mean, as I prayed this morning for this room, for this service specifically, I, I would agree with Michael. I think there's probably two or three more in the room who are compelled. You're sensing the Lord say today. If you're anything like I was at that point, you're grabbing onto your chair right now going, don't get up, don't get up. But that's okay. We're going to worship for a little bit, and you are free to come up and talk to John and Steph, and they will get you set up uh, if that's you. Yeah. Just pay attention to what God is doing. He's doing some things. There's something in the back corner over there that the Spirit of God is meeting a few of you. Just Just let him rest on you. I don't know if this is for baptism, but, well, we'll do ministry time, but uh, you and, you know, young lady with the dark hair, the Lord is just saying to you, you're my daughter, I love you. Okay. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's worship a little bit. You want folks to stand? And- yeah, why don't you guys stand up? Uh, the worship team is going to lead us in worship for a couple songs. We'll do a baptism, and then uh, we'll do some ministry time and pray for one another. So uh, these guys are going to lead us in worship, and take it away. Rock and roll. <laughs>